Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of A New Kind of Celebrity. I'm your host Venal and I'm excited to bring you another inspiring and insightful conversation this week. At A New Kind of Celebrity, we define the word celebrity differently. We define it as someone worth celebrating. Our guests are people who are doing incredible work to make this world a better place. Join us as we celebrate these individuals and learn from their experiences, leadership and wisdom. In this episode, we are celebrating Rob Burnett. Rob is the CEO and founder of Shujaz Inc, a double Emmy award winning network of social ventures that inspire, entertain and mobilize 7.5 million youth across East Africa. Shujaz Inc East Africa's biggest youth brand uses the power of media and entertainment to break down barriers so young people can take charge of their future. They've had high impact with Shujaz fans being 2.7 times less likely to marry during their teens and 2.4 times more likely to delay childbirth than non-fans. Before setting up Shujaz Inc in 2009, Rob spent 7 years as the Ford Foundation's program officer for media, arts and culture based in Nairobi. Rob has worked in large-scale public interest TV production for East Africa and he is also the founder of Nairobi's contemporary art studio, the Kuona Trust. Listen on to hear exciting insights of using media to shape youth behavior. really really excited uh, to have this conversation with you rob and thank you so much for giving us your time sure i'm happy to be here so i'd love if you could maybe just start with sharing more about yourself and what led you to starting a well-told story which is now shujaz so i've been i've been working for a big american philanthropy and i was based here in kenya and i was making grants to organizations and projects around east africa and i funded projects in media arts and culture and i was one of several program officers and my colleagues were focused on things like health and governance and education and natural resources and all of the things that we were trying to achieve all of the goals that we had the noble goals that we had all of them needed millions of people to change the way they live their lives right if they were to become successful and that there was a need and an opportunity to start thinking about how to trigger and support social change at a big scale and some of the most successful work that i had been involved with in that job was funding media and the most successful things we had done was when we gave control of the camera when we gave control of the story to young people in kenya uganda and tanzania we generated huge interest and big audiences And in fact some of the initiatives that we had some of the programs that we were making they were the most popular things on television you know millions of people wow. were, were getting involved so it seemed to me then that there was a chance to address this problem that i had observed diagnosed and rightly or wrongly by stepping across the line and going into the media and trying to be useful there but around that same time there was an election here in the end of 2007 at the beginning of 2008 there was an election which went wrong right and the country found itself divided really brutally divided almost for the first time along two lines you know the election was like almost 50-50 half the country was furious with the other half and there was violence and for several months kenya was sort of hanging on a thread where we thought it could almost become civil war and afterwards kofi annan and the united nations managed to restore some peace and but during this period of conflict hundreds of thousands of young people had been turned into soldiers and had basically been whipped up by politicians to go and fight the other side and after the peace was restored all those thousands and thousands of young people were left exactly where they started the politicians drove away in their mercedes and flew off in their helicopters the young people who had fought for them nothing had changed and so these things sort of were coming together in my mind and i thought well there's a place for us to be active here it's, and it's working with young people it's helping them to navigate the future and actually the work i had been doing in philanthropy i was aware of lots of exciting projects it's not as if there were no exciting and useful positive things for young people to do it's right. just it felt like none of those things was ever quite getting to scale hmm. and so in my mind i thought well okay 
we've got this huge population of young people. We've got enormous needs that they have to be inspired, to learn stuff, to figure things out for the future, to get opportunities, to get knowledge, to get learning, to get ideas. And we need a means to do that. Young people who are not in school, who don't read the newspaper, who don't watch the news, can we create a channel that will enable those young people to get access to information? And how do we do it? So Shujaz Inc., uh, this thing that I run today, is really the product of that question. If your task is to reach millions of young people who are not in school and who don't meet anywhere, how do you reach them? And how do you help them to plug into really important ideas? Because you can get them to talk about football. Yeah. But how do you get them to talk about you know, the big ideas that are going to help them to navigate the future? And so Shujaz was our solution to that problem. I think it's so interesting. You know, you said education, healthcare, all of these noble ideas. And I think oftentimes we don't put media as one of them, right? As a channel, even though, like you said, all the causes need that channel to reach out to people. So I think it's really fascinating. Can you tell us more of what the solution evolved to be and mm. what were the early days like, right? Like how did you all come up with the final mm. product that you all did and what were the early days like? I had this idea that maybe I could be useful by making big media and maybe I could be useful by making media about important things. Hmm. And I had some ideas about how to do it because I had seen how successful it was when we gave control to young media makers. And then it became clear out of this election that really the place where we could be most useful was this youth population. So really thinking about, well, in fact, 15 to 24 year olds, that's our target, but mostly thinking about those people who aren't in school. Because they're the people who no longer have access to organized information. Right. So we thought, well, since we don't have a classroom in which we can call them, you know, and we don't have a church that we can bring them to, and we don't have a kind of lecture theater, nor do we have a TV station, maybe the way to do it is with a story. Maybe the way to do it is with a story, because everybody loves a great story. Yeah. And everybody remembers that teacher from school who was just a brilliant storyteller. And a Good story can be about anything. There are no limits. Because if we can tell a good story about big, important things, young people will lean in and they'll come voluntarily because we can't call them. We have no rights right. to call them. Right. So around this time, I was doing jobs for people. I was being a consultant. I was trying to figure this stuff out. And I found myself in a big, there's a big informal settlement, a sort of slum, I guess. In, the, in Nairobi called Kibera. It's a sort of giant area. I mean, they say a million people live there. And so I was there visiting a project. I was really in the kind of, in the sort of darkest corner of Kibera. And I came around a corner and I found three little boys sitting on a bench reading a comic book. It really wasn't even really a comic book. It was like the remains of a comic book <laughs> that had been read by so many people that it was like, almost like a rag. But these three kids were squeezed up side by side glued to this remainder of a comic book. They didn't even look up when I walked in, you know. They were so interested in this thing. I thought, wow. And I was kind of, I was, I was in this, you know, I was trying to figure this stuff out. And I thought, wow, imagine we were in that comic book hmm. because they were so enthralled. And I remember it was a comic book about football. And, right. I, and I thought, well, you know, nothing against football. But what a shame <laughs> that that comic isn't about something more important. So... So that was my thinking was like, can we get into that comic? That's where we want to be. We want to have that level of focus from young people where they don't even look up. You know, they're, they're so glued. We said, can we produce a comic book that is a story that's so appealing that people will come for it? They'll come and take it from our hands. We won't even have to take it to them. They'll come and pick it from us because it's so good and so exciting and so relevant. But actually, it will lead young people to learn really important stuff, the kind of ideas that can help them achieve their goals and their ambitions. So 10 years later, we've been doing it. In fact, this is our 11th year. I think we've distributed 120 million copies of, of the Wow. Comic. So we're now one of the world's biggest comic producers, I think. Oh, um, wow. And somehow, well, and in 2020, our story, Shujaz, which means heroes, reached 71% of all the 15 to 24 year olds in Kenya. So in the intervening 10 years, it's become a massive brand. 
uh, and Incredible. a sort of a part of people's lives and a kind of a trusted part of people's lives. Hmm. And because of that, we can also now say, as we look back over these years, that it's also changed people's lives. And so some or even many of the things that we set out to do kind of idealistically back then have actually come to happen. And I know that because we've learned a lot along the way, because at the beginning, of course, it was quite a struggle. We hadn't got any money. We had these sort of ideas, but no proof. You know, that we were, had some hopes. I think perhaps because my work had been in media before that. And, and actually before that, my work had been in the arts. So mm. I was an art curator. And so I, I'm a big believer in the power of art. And I'm, a, I'm an evangelist. I don't need to be convinced that right. art is a powerful tool. So I had faith that this thing that we were making was going to work. And in fact, I never really questioned it. I was completely certain that it would work. And that telling a story would be a way to get messages across or ideas across. And by then I wasn't alone. I was working with some friends of mine. You know, I'd found some artists that I knew from before I'd worked with. I found some comedians, some poets, some, you know, young creative people who as much as possible came from the world that we were trying to reach into. So we didn't take from the rich parts of the city. We really went and found young people who came from the wrong side of town to be part of our team. Right. And so we came up with this story. And the story is about a pirate radio DJ. So I don't even remember how this came around. Right? But we were <laughs> trying to figure out what is this story we're going to tell? You know, what is the story that's going to allow us to hang all these kinds of ideas? And the story we came up with is, a, is DJ B is a pirate radio DJ. And he's a kid who just, he's clever with electronics somehow. Mm. And he's built a radio station in his bedroom at home. And we don't know how, we don't, we don't understand the details, but I have a friend actually from school, but way back uh, in my childhood, a friend of mine who left school with no qualifications because he was in, incapable of passing an exam, but he could build a radio station in his bedroom. You know, he was gifted mm. with electrical things, but not with pen and paper. So I said, okay, well, if my friend Malcolm could build this radio station, so could our DJ. Right. And so DJB, our main character, has a radio station in his bedroom. And he has a radio show, which is like a pirate radio show, which he broadcasts from the roof of his house. And somehow it beams out across the country. And the show is a call out to young people to step up. Don't wait. Good things are not coming on their own. It's up to you. Take an action start moving. And if you, if you have a good idea, or if you have a, a plan, or if you've done something which is working for you, which is helping you to make your life better, then send me a message, send the DJ a message, and I'm going to share it with everybody else, because I have a radio station. Right. And so let's share the good stuff. And by these means, we, the youth of Kenya, we're all going to grow together by helping one another. So this was our kind of founding idea. And then we thought, okay, so he's our kid, he lives somewhere on the edge of the city. We drew a picture of him. We imagined him. There's some chickens. Sometimes we hear them in the background. <laughs> you know. Uh, but then who are the other characters? Well, they are the listeners to his radio show. And they're boys or girls. They're older or younger. They're urban or they're rural. So we have a set of characters. And each of them has an experience. They think of something that they're doing. They go, this is really good. I'm going to tell DJB so that hmm. he can tell everybody. Hmm. And so originally that was our, our thought. We said, we'll have a kid from the village. We'll have a girl from the coast. We'll right. have another character from the urban slum. We'll have these characters and each one, boy or girl, older, or they'll represent everybody. Hmm. So all of our readers and our followers will find somebody that they recognize themselves. They'll say, oh, that could be me. Right. And so the idea was that each of these characters will have an adventure and then they'll share their adventure with the DJ and the DJ will, and then we'll have a sort of storyline which allows us to talk about all kinds of different ideas each month or each week. But what we didn't count on was the reaction of the audience. So it took us some time to start this thing up. You know, we had the idea, we had to try and find some money, we had to persuade lots of people to trust us. And, but in the end, when we launched, we launched at quite a big scale. We, had a, we did a wonderful deal with the biggest newspaper in Kenya called The Nation. And they agreed that they would insert this magazine inside their newspaper on a Saturday when they right. have their biggest print run. And then our 
comic would find its way to all the corners of the country inside the national newspaper. And then we also did a deal with the big mobile phone company who have a network of kiosks where you send money and pesa. Right. And so we did the same deal with them. So actually, the, even the first day, we printed more than half a million copies wow. of this thing. And it was, and on the same day it arrived across the country, unannounced, it was suddenly there. And I remember driving to town from my house that Saturday and seeing people reading it, seeing people by the bus stop, you know, standing. And I, I was so proud. You know, I wow. thought, wow, we've made this thing. It's out there. But what we hadn't imagined is that our audience would immediately start to send messages to the DJ. We thought that our fictional characters would be doing that. Hmm. What we didn't realize is that real young people on the first day wow. started sending messages. And there's a law here which says that if you publish a magazine or a book or something, you hmm. have to have an address, you have to show, show where your offices are, and you have to have a phone number. So we put the phone number and we put it in tiny, tiny, tiny letters. You could hardly read it because we just had to do it. The law says we have to do it. So tiny letters. My goodness. By the time we came in on Monday to the office, the phone was filled with SMSs. Like wow. the, it was just packed. You know, we had hundreds of young people had written to the DJ. Hey, DJB, I found your number. Here's my <laughs> idea. And so that's how we started. And somehow or other, there's a little bit of magic in the story because young people just jumped on it. Mm. So the comic launched, but at the same time, we made a radio show. And the radio show was the show presented by the DJ. And mm. we syndicated it onto a number of big FM radio stations. So not only could you read the comic book about the DJ, you could actually listen to his radio show. And then you could send him a message. Mm. So you could send him a text. And after we realized how many people wanted to do that, of course, we made that a big part of our channel. And well, he, these days, our numbers are big, right? You know, so it's tens of thousands of messages per week and you know, hundreds of thousands of messages on Facebook and millions and millions of followers on, on social media. And we've evolved as we think the DJ would have evolved. Mm -hmm. So we don't print so many comics now. The total number of comics is part, we're, we're past the peak mm -hmm. because we have now 4 million followers on Facebook. And, right. and the DJ is actually more of a digital DJ now. We no longer broadcast an FM radio show. We don't need to mm -hmm. because the audience has evolved and we're trying to evolve with him, uh, with the audience, yeah, with the DJ. So at the beginning, it was really a struggle. You know, we were looking for sponsorships. We were looking for fundraising. We were looking for commercial partners like the newspaper and the mobile phone company. And we were looking for people who had ideas that they needed to extend to the whole country. So right. we said, why don't you use us, right? Because we can reach millions of young people in a very persuasive way. Hmm. So before you buy billboards or, you know, put advertisements on television, you might want to consider working with us. Hmm. Uh, and actually, that's the way things have continued to go. So it was an enormous struggle at the beginning. And uh, we, we were living from one month to the next. Hmm. You know, will we have enough to go to the printing press? But we also knew that when we started, we thought we once we start the engine, we can't stop it. Because we want to create an expectation with our audience that we're going to be there for them. Right. And that they can trust us, they can rely on us. And so we've never missed an edition in 140 editions. I don't even know what the number is now. And that's also very important because I think there are a few lessons that we've learned that which I think are extremely important to the kind of longevity and the success. Hmm. So one of them is that we stand as close as we can to our fans, to our audience, hmm. and we try and tell their story. So although I'm a you know, middle-aged British guy who grew <laughs> up in Scotland and moved here you know, it, when I graduated from university, you know, the people who make the media, the people who make jazz are all 20-something young Kenyans. Even sometimes we are employing teenagers to try right. and get as close as possible to our audiences as we can. And what we've found is that here in Kenya, that audience that we serve rarely finds their story being told to them. Right. If you switch on the TV here, you're much more likely to see a show made in America. Hmm or you'll hear a story set in the luxury suburbs of the big cities, and you'll read about the lives of rich people. But it's quite unusual to meet the story of being an ordinary kid growing right. up in Africa, especially growing up in 
rural, outside the city. Right. Those stories are not told in the media. So one of the things that has turned out to be extremely powerful, I think, is the fact that we tell those stories. And we try and tell them as accurately as, as we can, as authentically as we can. Mm. And we don't sugarcoat things. You know, when you see advertisements for the big mobile phone company, I was, I, I was looking at this the other day. The grass is always green and the washing hanging on the washing line <laughs> is always right. snow white. Right. You know, and the food always looks delicious. And the old man with the white beard is always smiling. And we think that that's okay, but that's not the real world mm. that our audience lives in. So we try to show reality where the shadows are dark and evil exists, but so does joy and so does beauty and, and love. Right. But by getting as close to the real life and not glossing over it, we have won, I think, a little bit of the trust of our fans. So firstly, they see their world reflected to them. And secondly, we show it as accurately as we can. And we also use their language. Hmm. So rather than English or like school book hmm. Kiswahili, we use slang. Right. So the way our audience speaks is the way our characters speak. But the only people who've ever really complained to us in all these years are school teachers <laughs> right. who get upset because we're not using good English, nor are we using good Swahili. Hmm. And they get furious about this. And we say, well, we're not trying to teach language. We're trying to get as close as we can to our fans. And I think at the same time, the way we distribute the media is another reflection of that. Hmm. We try and get it as close to our fans as possible, and it's free. We give hmm. it to them. Oh. Um, these days, we've stopped working with the mobile phone company. And instead, we work with our own network. We have 5,000-something volunteer distributors hmm. who we send them a bundle of comic books each month, and then they give them to their network, either the people who come to their, their shop or their pool table or their video den or their cyber cafe. Right. And they give the comics out because it makes them feel good. Hmm. And that's another way that we kind of build this the network and the momentum of the story. So because we got some of these things right, because the story felt good, hmm. because the language and the authenticity gets very, very close to the truth, because we've been there day after day, month after month, because we don't preach, because we don't lecture them, because we're really trying to tell stories that are helpful, and because we're not standing over our young people, telling them what to do. But we're really trying to stand next to them mm. and discover things together. Because of that, the audience is very, very loyal. And the audience really trusts Shujaz. And, and so what we've come to discover then over time is that that trust is the reason that Shujaz, the brand, is powerful. But after a couple of years, we said, can we be sure? Are we certain that we really understand the world the way our audience understands it? And can we also know for sure that our media is working, that there's an impact? Yeah. Can we reassure our partners that we are actually bringing change to the lives of our audience? And so we started measuring things. Hmm. And actually, that has then become almost as important as the media that we make is that we have this team now who creates media and interact with our millions and millions of fans, but we also have a team who try to measure everything, hmm. everything. And because of that, we've got better and better at what we do. And because of that, we know it, we know it's working. And that allows us to become more and more ambitious and more and more systematic and more and more uh, subtle, I would say. Hmm as we try and sort of peel the layers of understanding. How does a story lead people to change their lives? I mean, right. how does that happen? What's the kind of magic that happens inside somebody's head that turns a story into a new behavior? Hmm. And then, of course, because we can now prove 
that what we're doing is creating quite big effects, we have more and more organizations who want to work with us. Yeah. So exciting. I'm literally almost at the edge of my seat as you're speaking. I have so many thoughts flooding as you're speaking. The first one that comes to mind is, you know, you mentioned that you don't preach, you don't lecture. At the same time, there are really big ideas that will influence their life. So it's almost like a million dollar question for every teacher, every parent who's working with adolescents, right? You want to say so much, you want to help, but everything that comes out feels like a lecture, feels preachy. So could you maybe give a few examples of what are the kind of issues that you talk about in the comic and how do you make it non-preachy? Okay, I've got a couple of examples. So a few years ago, a very nice lady came to see us from the World Bank in Hmm. Nairobi. And... A year or two earlier, we had changes to the constitution in Kenya. And as part of the new constitution, we went to a a more sort of federal system Hmm. where now decisions are being made in counties, 47 counties. And so more decisions were taken away from central government and they were given to these county administrations. Hmm. So part of the desire of the new constitution is that everybody should join in the decision making at the counties. But of course, in practice, in particular, young people are not doing that. Young people are not showing up to take part in county budgets, <laughs> county budget hearings. You know. And honestly, I'm not surprised. But right. the lady from the World Bank was surprised. You know, She was frustrated because she was also a true believer. She was a believer in the importance of this process. She really, really, really wanted Uh, it to work. And she wanted young people to show up at county budget hearings. And so she came to see us. Shujaz, can you help? You talk to all these young people. Can you get them to show up to these meetings? And it was like, wow, okay, this is going to be tough. Because I've never met a kid who wants to go to a county budget (laughs) hearing. They might be there. I'm sure they're out there. But I mean, I've never knowingly met one. But the trouble is, I could see that the lady from the World Bank was like, bright eyed, you know, she was so sure that all we had to do was put a story in the comic book and in the radio and in the social media, and like there would be thousands of people streaming into these meetings. And I thought, wow, she's going to be disappointed. You know? <laughs> and we don't want to disappoint her. So we thought about how do we explain to her the problem? And then we had this kind of breakthrough. We, we ended up drawing on the kind of blackboard in the office. There's a scale. It starts at zero, and it goes to like 100% showing up at the county budget here. Hmm. So... Right now, young people are at zero, and you would like us to move them in the direction of 100% attendance. Are we right? Yes, that's right. He said, aha, here's the problem. Young people are not at zero. They are at 100% no chance. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Not in a million years. Wild horses will not drag me into that county budget hearing. So... They're not at zero, ready to step inside. They're a long way away. And the reason they're a long way away is because they already have information. They already know some stuff about the way the county works. And they know they're not interested. It's not for them. Actually, bad things might even happen if they went to that county budget hearing. Probably the the, uh, SCARI, the kind of watchman is going to shout at them, chase them away. They're going to be treated disrespectfully, you know, why would I go? What is the reason for me to go? So we said, your problem to the lady from the bank is that you're going to measure the wrong thing. Because what you want to do is measure people showing up. But really, the job that you're giving to us is not the job of getting people in to the county budget hearing. The job is getting people to dislike the county budget hearing less. Hmm. So the job doesn't start by ringing a bell next to the door saying it's time to come inside. The job starts by explaining to people why it is worth considering entering the process and why their participation matters and why they might be wrong in thinking that they will be treated with disrespect if they, as a young person, show up in that big meeting and why actually democracy needs young people to play a role. And we thought, well, we can just about have a conversation about that. Hmm. And that can be successful. And we can probably measure 
changes in young people's attitudes because we can have a conversation about something they're interested in, but we cannot really promise to bring you thousands of people to your county budget hearing. And actually, the longer we, we thought about that, we realized we did, we went and did some research, right? So we went and spoke to lots of young people and we tried to figure out exactly where do they stand. And of course, there are a small minority of people who are quite keen to go to the meeting. But there are a lot of people, particularly young women, and the quote we got was, they don't even know if they care. Hmm. You know, that the local political process is so remote from them, they couldn't care less. Why, why, why? Don't waste my time with this. I have so many other things to think about. So then we did an experiment. We did a story in the media, in the Shijaz media, about a young character in our story world getting married. Hmm. and how she designs the wedding committee. So in Kenya, the tradition is that when you get married, you bring your friends together, and they all help with the organizing. It's a big deal. People spend a lot of money, but it's very, very important moments in people's lives. And so everybody rallies around, and you have a committee. So you'll be somebody who is in charge of the catering, Hmm. and somebody else is in charge of the venue, somebody else in charge of the bridesmaids' dresses, somebody else is in charge of the groom's outfit and everybody chips in money and in energy and time and commitment Hmm. and and when it's your time to get married well we'll chip in for you that's how the system works and it's very very obviously very very important and it turns out it's very important to young women young women are probably more concerned about their wedding committee the people who are going to help to make it a success than anything else than young men are of course it turns out that for example when you're putting together your wedding committee, you're not going to ask your drunk friend to be the in charge of the food. That would be a mistake because probably on the big day, the guy will have had too many drinks the night before. And equally, that other guy you know who's got a debt problem, who's always borrowing money, he's always trying to get us cash of you, he's got financial difficulties, you're not going to make him the treasurer. Hmm. That would probably be a mistake to put him in charge of the finances of your wedding committee. And so actually, you can have a really interesting conversation about the perfect wedding committee. And as we've discovered, many, many, many thousands of young women will take part in that conversation. Hmm. And actually, what they're discussing is governance. Because the way you form your wedding committee Hmm. is pretty similar to the way you want to form the cabinet who runs the country. You don't want the drunk guy running the cabinet either. And you don't want the guy who can't handle his money to be in charge of the treasury. And so actually what we have found is that we can have that conversation in our media. It could also be about the football team. Hmm. You know, I don't want to talk about local politics, but I do want to talk about football clubs. I've got a view on that. I want to know how the football club should be run. You can get me interested in that. And actually from there, to thinking about local government or thinking about why you should probably show an interest in the budget that's being decided, which will affect how the money is being spent in your community. Actually, it's not a long journey Hmm. from the football club or the wedding committee to the local government. And so what we've discovered is that sometimes you can't hit the problem head on. You have to find a way around it where actually everybody wants to talk. You have to find a place where the thing that we're interested in discussing somehow intersects with the thing that they're interested in discussing. So that's been an important trick. So not to try and drag people into the meeting room. They don't want to come. Meet them where they are and find a way to have a conversation, which ultimately will bring you to the place you want to get to. The other story relevant to this was from a focus group that we held about two years ago. And we do focus groups all the time. We Mm. check everything with groups of young people. These days we do everything on WhatsApp because we Mm. can't, uh, can't go live since COVID. And that seems to work as well. But we were in a, another informal settlement in Nairobi called Kawangwari. And we were talking to young people there and uh, a young man in the group who, who told us after an hour or so we'd been chatting, And he explained that until a few months earlier, he had been a known thief in Kawangwari. And he lived in Kawangwari his whole life. He lived with his mum and his five siblings 
in some very uh, humble home. And he went around robbing people. Right. And everybody knew this, but no one ever spoke about it. And so one day, a few months before we met him, he had been arrested on a Saturday because he was planning a robbery. And he was picked up by the police and he spent the night in the police station. And when he got home on Sunday to his mum's house, she was in a very bad way because during the night, thieves had come to their house and stolen all of their valuables. And she was in a very, very bad state, Mm. in part because she suspected that her son and his criminal friends must have had something to do with it, especially because the son hadn't come home that night. Mm. So this was her sort of confronting him for the first time, speaking openly about his life of crime. So he said, no, 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 mom, it wasn't me. I spent the night with my friend, my friend's house. So she dragged him to the friend's house. And of course, the story fell apart because he'd spent the night in the police station. Right. So now he was confronted by this terrible realization that he was about to lose his mum's love. Hmm. And actually for him, that was probably the one good thing in his life was the love of his mum, the one pure thing that he could rely on. And so he said that he kind of collapsed on his knees in front of his mum and he begged her for forgiveness and he changed his life. So he stopped his life of crime and he went home and he rented a house separately and he took one of his brothers away from the mum's responsibility and another kid came to live with him and now he was looking after them and he was doing odd jobs and he was staying away from his criminal friends and he was trying to live a clean life. Hmm. And he told us that this experience had taught him that there are three teams in life, he said. He said in team one, bad people do bad things in the open. Hmm. He said, that's the team I used to be in. He said in team two, people say good things and they seem to do good things, but they're just trying to use you. And he said, then there's team three. And in team three, tuna jengana, he said, which means we build each other. And he said, I'm trying to be in team three now. And he said, you guys, you should jazz guys, you're team three. So we took this story back to the office and we said, well, are we always in team three? Or are there some times where we're just trying to use people? Hmm. Where maybe we've got a contract or a target that has to be hit, where we have to create a story. And actually the main thing that we're trying to do is to achieve a goal so that we can report back to our partner and get paid. Hmm. And sometimes we have been in team two. We've slipped there. Hmm. And so we did a sort of audit at that point to say, we know where we have to be. We have to be in team three. We have to be in that space where we're just trying to build each other. Tuna jengana. And let's be careful because it's very easy to slip into team two, where actually the young people in our audience are not our main goal. There's something else that has distracted us that we also have to deliver. And unfortunately, lots and lots of big international development projects are definitely in team two Mm. because they become about something else. You know, there's a bureaucracy and there's accountability and there's pressure that means that people trying to do good things get pulled away and they have to deliver something else. So I think that part of our formula to make sure that we stay close to our audience that we help them to grow is the question that we constantly ask ourselves. Are we in team three Hmm. or are we, have we slipped just trying to use people? Because that young man, his name was Aaron, 21 years old. He could see the difference between team two and team three. Hmm. And it turns out people can smell it. (laughs) And what we've found is that when we stick in team three, beautiful things happen because our audience trusts us. They grow in number and our ability to be useful accelerates. What a beautiful story. I'm, I'm definitely going to remember this story of the different teams and which team do we want to be in. 
something you had mentioned rob earlier it's also on the website it was also a big part of the presentation many years ago that i attended is the impact that you're having and how given the amount of research you'll have done you're sure of causalities and i think that's something that the social sector in general struggles with right especially when you're trying to shift behaviors given the number of variables that are actually there mm. i remember being extremely fascinated at that point also with the comfort and confidence with which you shared that and even as i was seeing the website recently right talking about how mm. marriages have been delayed or childbirth has been delayed with young women would love to understand maybe just very quickly how you influence that so what are again the stories that influence some of the delay and how do you measure it to be sure that it's because of them reading mm. shujas so obviously that idea of causality is really is really critical and it's very very hard to achieve um so part of our commitment to measurement so mm. we do measurement in two places we do measurement before we start working on a project okay to say do we really understand where our audience are when we were talking to aaron mm. this uh, young man it's because we were trying to understand you know how does he look at the world you know does he see it the way we see it almost certainly not hmm. can we can we get inside his head can we see through his eyes and through the eyes of other people and then we'll know where we where to start and then we do research at the other end which is as people are interacting with our media can we be certain that change is coming and can we also be certain that the change is coming because of us so in order to get that causality or attribution we work with partners from a number of international universities who find this interesting and one of the key ways we've been able to do it is using something called a longitudinal panel study so that means you you identify a large number of people who you choose at random from the population of young people in Kenya that's something we do every year a big survey like that and then you keep a hold of those people's telephone numbers and their addresses and then 12 months later you go back and you find the same individuals again and then again the following year and then you so you have the same people over time and half of them if you're fortunate following shujaz hmm. uh, shujaz fans and half of them have no interest don't pay attention and right. then you can do something i can't do it but these academic colleagues of ours can do it called right. multivariate regression analysis uh, which is some exceedingly skillful mathematics right. that allows you to say actually when you control for all of the other potential variables hmm. the thing that determined the outcome was exposure to shujaz and it wasn't age education wealth location gender and so on so then we do the work the papers you know the analysis is done by some of these academic partners of ours and then ultimately we hope that their findings will be published in a peer review academic journal and so mm-hmm. on our website there's a whole number of papers that have been published and peer reviewed so mm-hmm. then we have a very very high degree of confidence that these are accurate reflections of what's actually happening right um, So that's how we measure hmm. but also but then how do we achieve these results so I'll tell you another story a few years ago we were in a pub in a hotel in Bomet which is a small town about 5 hours drive from Nairobi where I am and uh, we were again going there to meet young people to ask them about you know things in fact what we were trying to get at then was how do we understand how young people use contraception in hmm. Kenya so we were trying to understand that again through the eyes of our fans So we were in this pub and we were talking to young people in the morning no one was there it was empty and then the young people left and the manager of the pub came over and asked us what we were doing so we explained this was our interest he said well that's interesting he said i have 20 waitresses who work in this hotel it was a big place he said i got 20 girls young women who work here different days he said all of them are single mothers every single one of the girls who works here has a baby at home none is married and we said okay well this is the situation we're trying to understand so we said kind of casually to him if we asked you to get your waitresses to use contraception could you do it because that's what we're trying to do trying to figure out how to make it automatic that young women in bomet use contraception he said yeah yeah no problem we said okay tell us this he said i just promote them I just promote them so we asked him to explain He said when when a young lady works here and she's coming in every night and she's wiping down the tables and she's taking away empty glasses and she's sweeping the floor he said she's got nothing she is in crisis 
He said, probably the money that she's earning tonight, she already spent it this morning. Hmm. You know, she's in debt. She's probably got two other jobs. So if one of the customers says, should we go home? Should we go home together? She's probably going to say yes. Because what else has she got? If somebody just is nice to her, she'll probably go home with them because she's got nothing. But he said the very same girl, if she walks behind the bar and now she becomes the cashier, the same girl just steps behind the counter and now her job is to take the money and to write the receipts and to keep stock. He said the moment she walks behind the bar, she starts using contraception. He said, because now her view of the world has changed. Now she thinks tomorrow is going to be better than today. Hmm. Now she feels as if she has one foot on the bottom step of a ladder that is going to lead her to somewhere better. And the moment she has that feeling, she knows what to do. She knows that she has to protect tomorrow. Right. Ultimately, she has agency. She has control. She has a feeling of control, not complete control, mm. but a little bit more optimism that she can determine how her life is going to be tomorrow. And the moment she has that feeling, and you can't fake that feeling, you either have it or you don't have it. But the moment she has that feeling, actually, she reaches for the contraception because she says, I'm not going to jeopardize tomorrow, tonight. And so she voluntarily adopts contraception. And so actually, since we came to understand that, and we, we learned that lesson a few different ways, we realized that actually in order to get young people to, to use contraception, you don't even need to talk about it. You just have to get young people to start feeling more confident about themselves and about their ability and about their potential. Mm. You don't ha even have to give everyone a job. Not everyone can be behind the bar. But what you have to do is give young people a feeling that they have the power, that if they make sensible decisions, they can get there, that there is no limit to how far they can go. But if you've grown up in poverty in Kenya, and I dare say in many other places, it may be that you've never met anyone like you who has been successful. Right. You can't imagine what the steps are. You don't even know what success can look like. And so one of the things that Shujaz is able to do is able to hold up a story and say, look, here's somebody who really looks exactly like you, mm. who maybe started off exactly where you are just one or two years ago. But now look where they are. They've made a couple of clever choices. And now their whole life starts to look like it's going to be OK. Not that they're going to be driving a car out of the slums. No, no, we don't talk about that. But actually, they're just making two or three dollars a day compared with your $1, or maybe they're making $5 a day. And what we've discovered, and we can show this again and again and again in the data that we're seeing, that as soon as young people start to feel that confidence, as soon as they can picture themselves, as soon as they feel, oh, wow, I'm one of those. I'm that kind of person. As soon as they acquire that identity, they start to make better decisions. Hmm. And those decisions start to accumulate and grow. They start to earn more. They start to save more. They start to plan further ahead. They vote more often and they don't have babies so young and they don't get married so young. And so actually all of these good things that we've been able to document come as a kind of a package. Mm. And the package comes not because of anything really we've done, but simply that we've shown that there's a path and we've helped young people realize that they have the power to follow that path if they choose. And we invite them to take it. And when they do so, good things start to happen. And so one of the studies that has been published recently suggests that young people who are in that space with us, they're earning almost double what their exact peers are earning who are not in the space. So wow. Shijaz is associated with almost doubling income. And for young people living in poverty, and actually, you accumulate that across the population, that young people stay in school longer. I mean, the value for young people as individuals and the value for society just starts to mushroom. It's extraordinary. 
So it's it's quite it's quite powerful that story yeah. turns out. Yeah, that's incredible. The nuance and the layers like you spoke about earlier as well, right? Just peeling back the layers of saying you want this behavior change and really trying to understand what will lead to it. I think that's it is really powerful to say get to the core of what might change that behavior because oftentimes programs very well-intentioned programs, people, organizations, like you said, are trying to hit right here and will probably spend hours and lots of money like talking about contraceptives and ads about contraceptives. And I think it's just really a very, very interesting how you shared the story. Something you had shared earlier that these comics are free and you have 71% you mentioned of youth in that age group that you're targeting, 15 to 24, who actually read it. To get that mm. huge readership and loyal readership while giving it for free and you also mentioned that the day you launched it was completely at scale through newspapers and these mobile vendors how does that work how do you how are you able to give the comic for free to youth and yet convince such big players to give your comics out very very curious to understand that right from the beginning we said it has to be free right because the people we want to help haven't got any money Right. And of course, when the scale is big, the unit cost, the cost per comic is very mm. low. Mm. So, of course, the total cost is very high. Sure. And so it is a challenge that we face all the time back in the office to say, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to ensure that we can continue to operate at scale? But they actually, the offer looks quite good on paper because we say, well, it's like just a few cents per year to reach a young person. Well, I mean, this recent study, basically, so our operating budget in Kenya is about $6 million, something like that, five, between five and $6 million a year. And last year, according to this economists from uh, Tulane University in New Orleans, we added $128 million to the economy just through one of our wow. media channels. So the direct value created was $128 million, kind of at least. And then mm. there's educational benefits. And then there's health benefits. So in fact, the same team are doing a return on investment analysis at the moment, which is likely to, to reflect an even greater return. Mm. Now, of course, that return doesn't come to us because we're giving the media away. The return is a social and yeah. it's a sort of national return. Obviously, then our other job is to find partners who share the cost with us. So our budget this year will probably work with 20 organizations. Mm. I think last year we, we did 27 or something different groups worked with us at different times. So we did. We were working on COVID, of course, making sure people understood the, the kind of rules around COVID. That was a lot of work we suddenly did. Yeah. And then we're also doing stuff on reproductive health and the same things we're talking about and stuff on economic development and employability and also helping young people to become entrepreneurs. That's a huge thing for us now, recognizing yeah. that there aren't enough jobs and most people will never get a job. So how do we prepare people for the real world they're likely to be in? And so for all of these projects, we go and find partners. Some of them are commercial partners who mm. are interested in helping us because it builds their brand. Right. Big organizations like Vodafone or uh, Unilever or Microsoft, big people like that. And then, and then others are the government here and organizations like the Gates Foundation and uh, big philanthropic organizations. Yeah, very Makes fascinating. Sense? Absolutely. Though, if you don't mind, I do have a follow-up. I think now you have so much data and to prove, and you've had so many years of experience doing it, that it's easy to probably convince people. When you were launching the first round of your comic, at that mm. point, what convinced people to back you and say, okay, I'm going to put it with the Saturday paper that goes out? So I think the newspaper guys at the beginning, they could see that we had a quality product. So I went to them with a like a sample. Hmm. So this is what we're working on. And I don't want you to pay for this thing. I'm going to give it to you. They said they wanted to charge me. And I said, no, no, nor am I willing to pay you. <laughs> I said, I think this is going to be beneficial to you because this is an extra gift that you right. can give your customers. But I'm not going to pay you to take it to your customers. And what we discovered very quickly after like two or three months is that they had a spike in the sales wow. of the newspaper on the day that uh, we were included as a free insert. Although, mm. funnily enough, they would never tell me how big the spike was. <laughs> they, uh, but in fact, I think it was almost like an accident one day when somebody said, oh, yeah, we get this huge effect. And it's like, okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, and then they never mentioned it again. So I think the argument for the newspaper was purely commercial. 
I said, I have my own objective, which might be social, but I know that you don't. So in this case, look at the quality of this thing. Got it. It's free. Give it away. We'll both benefit. They accepted that. And I think broadly speaking, the same argument worked for the mobile phone company because we said, look, we're going to put your logo in there. We're going to, mm. we're going to kind of embed you in the storyline. You know, if there's a billboard in the background, it's going to be your billboard. Mm. Um, and I think we were lucky, really, that in both cases, we got to like, I used every connection I had to try and get access to like the senior leaders in the two businesses. And it took me months because hmm. I had them in my sights, right, right from the beginning. But it took months to engineer a meeting, for example, with the boss of the phone company. And when I finally got there, I was ready to say, this is what we're doing. This is how it's going to work. This is how it's going to be good for you. Do you agree? And he said, looks interesting. Yeah, that's really, really inspiring. I think such an exciting story. Uh, do you want to share what's coming up for Shujaz? What other exciting stuff is there down the line? So when we started, the internet was only a small thing for most of our fans. Hmm. And of course, in those 10 years that have passed, now the internet is everywhere. And most many, I think this year, almost exactly half of our audience say that they have access to a smartphone. Right. So that's up from four years ago, it was 24%. This year, it's like 51%, I think. Hmm. So it's doubled in four years. And I guess it's going to double again. So we're thinking about what can we do on the internet that isn't there already that might be helpful to our fans? We've got a couple of things there. So, so we're very interested in the idea of the informal economy. Hmm. That, so our data says that more than 90% of young people who leave school this year will never get a formal job. It's like wow. 96%. Almost wow. everybody else is going to live in the informal sector. Now, school is still preparing people for a formal job. Hmm. It's like this 1960s model, but the jobs aren't there. So we started making videos, training videos, where we would find a successful young entrepreneur hmm. and we would go and interview them and we would ask them about their key skills and the things. that, And then we'd package these videos and we'd put them on YouTube and Facebook and very, very popular. So now what we've done is we've built a club, a digital club for our fans. And it does a few things. So I remember once, and again, in a focus group, a young man came and said, he said, he said, the thing about Facebook, he says, you go to Facebook to find your friends. He said, I don't want to find my friends. I know them already. <laughs> I, want to be, I want to be introduced to the people I should know, hmm. not the people I already know. So the first thing about our club is we're going to say, well, you come in and we're going to introduce you. We're going to introduce you around. So tell us a bit about yourself and we will find you meaningful connections who could help you in some way because they either are doing the same thing that you're doing or they're passionate about the same thing you're passionate about or they have the same ambition that you have or they've already done it. And actually some of them have made some videos because we've created this great big library. So maybe we'll introduce you to uh, this young person who's got a whole, like a whole course of videos that they've made. So right. if you want to know how she built her small business, you can follow her hmm. and you can also inter interact with her because it's a communications platform. So that's the first thing this kind of community does is we're going to start to network people hmm. and not the people you know the people you should know and you can learn from them and you can be mentored by them hmm. and you can take a, a class or a course which is taught by your peers no, no teachers just peers right. peer to peer but then it turns out that the data that collects from that can also be very valuable and at the moment it's a resource that is not available to young people it's a resource mm. which is taken away and sold away. Oh, I mean, the internet companies have it. Mm. So we've done some experiments over the last couple of years where we're saying, well, if we analyze the data that we have with permission, what can it unlock? And so what we've discovered is that there are some ways that we can package and aggregate our fans' data, which enables us to help them access services that they can't have today. So, for example, can we get them access to affordable loans from banks who would love to serve the informal sector, but they can't do it today because they can't identify individuals. I, I had a meeting a couple of years ago with the biggest bank. And I said, are you interested in informal sector youth entrepreneurs? And the guy said, they are the whole world. Mm. I said, what products have you got for them? He said, well, actually, truth is we don't really have any products for them because the problem is we can't see them. We look out of our office, 
we see 10 million young people and they all look exactly the same. Right. We don't know who the high-performing entrepreneurs are and we don't know who the fraudsters are hmm. who are going to run off with our money. We can't tell. So as a result, we don't really serve any of them very well. So the first thing that our new digital community does is make the right connections. So high-performing entrepreneurs can be identified and can start being served by banks and by suppliers and by big businesses who would love to interact with the informal sector, but cannot today because it's so inefficient. So we've just launched this and we've got a few thousand people on the platform and we're quite excited. We Very think it's exciting. the next big thing. There's a company who, who has a network of shops around the country, tiny kiosks selling their goods. They're saying, we want to expand our network. We want 10,000 more shopkeepers, but we don't know who to, who to work mm. with. It's too difficult for us to find the right people. Can you help us? Okay. Yes, we can find you 10,000. And, 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 and. So this is the next thing. So Shijaz and now Shijaz Mesh. It's our new experiment. Wow. We'll see how it goes. So exciting. Thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful stories. It's just been amazing to listen to you. And as we come to a close, I'd love to sort of close out with just advice, recommendations that you have for anyone listening, just from your experience. If there are two or three top of mind things that you'd love to share with people listening who may want to take a similar journey of creating impact the way you have. I think the story that makes the most sense to me is the story of Aaron and team one, team two, and team three. When I heard that story, it explained so many of the thoughts that I had had, but I'd been unable to put them so neatly as Aaron, mm. as Aaron did. So I think the, the secret of our success has been that when we do things well, we're in team three. The second thing that I think has been really instrumental in our success has been we've always aimed for scale right from the beginning. Like I said, as I started out earlier, you know, millions of people need to change the way they think. That was our strategic decision. We wanted to do something big. It's been very important to us, I think, was to be big. And I think the third thing that I would say is be bold. I have had many moments where I wondered whether I was making the right decision. And, you know, I've had many moments of kind of crisis where I thought this is madness, the risks, this could all go wrong. Why am I uh, putting everything on the line? Uh, and so far, things have always turned out pretty well. And there was a time a few years ago, I was driving somewhere and I was really, really worried because I was about to hire my first really expensive colleague. And I was really nervous about it. And I was going to a meeting and I, I turned on the radio and there was an obituary for a writer called Ray Bradbury, who I've never read his books, but I've heard of his name. And he was a science fiction writer and he had just died. And, uh, and they had a recording of him. And he had this really amazing voice like that, a huge mm -hmm. voice. And he said, he said, winner. He said, I said to the guy, I said, stop thinking about it. Walk, walk to the edge of the cliff and jump off and make your wings on the way down. <laughs> And I thought, my goodness, I, you know, I was obviously I was supposed to hear that. You know, stop thinking about it. Walk to the edge of the cliff and <laughs> jump. Make your wings on the way down. I think of that every time I'm I'm having a sort of crisis. I don't mean make crazy choices, but I think at some point, if it feels the right thing, do it. You'll make your wings on the way down. But if you don't jump, yeah. That's all I got. That's amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm just so energized. And with all the stories, the impact, just the model, I think it's just phenomenal work. Really, really inspiring and powerful. And thank you so much for taking out the time and sharing all these insights and stories with us. Very nice. It's a pleasure to meet you again. And uh, yes. uh, thanks. Well done for creating a podcast. You see, you're thank making you. your wings. You're <laughs> yes. making your wings. And we need people like you to be a force of energy, to be thinking about the problems that the world is facing and to spend your energy and your time on those things. And it doesn't mean sacrifice. Right. It means energy. It means excitement. It means progress. It means purpose. And uh, I, personally, I have found whenever I've been able to line those things up, it's been wonderful for me 
yeah. and it, and usually there have been some good outcomes. So congratulations to you too. Thank I you think, so much. Uh, you're on the right track, and I'm sure that you will continue to uh, to flourish and uh, and succeed and change the world around you. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And I will be following the the digital platform of Shujas to see what comes out of it. Well, I hope I hope you'll see something. I hope you'll see some wings. Yes, because we're definitely <laughs> falling at the moment. Uh, wings are yet to come. Lovely. Thank Lovely you so much. You. Have a good weekend. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked this episode, do subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We'd love to hear your suggestions, reactions, or even guest nominations. You can DM us on Instagram. Our handle is at a new kind of celebrity, or email us at a new kind of celebrity at gmail dot com. We look forward to meeting you soon. Till then, good luck and take care.